right relationships mean right living. Romans chapter 12. In all of Paul's letters, Paul concluded with a list of practical duties that were based on the doctrines he had discussed. And in the Christian life, doctrine and duty always go together. What we believe, or what our belief is, helps to determine how we are going to behave. It's not enough for us to understand Paul's doctrinal ex explanations, but we must translate our learning into living and show by our daily lives that we trust in God's word. The key idea in this section is relationships. In the term relational theology is a relatively, this is a relatively new idea, but the idea, or new thought pattern, but the idea itself is not new. If, if we have a right relationship with God, we'll have a right relationship to the people who are part of our lives. If a man say in um, Romans chapter 4, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is the, the fourth, quote, therefore in the letter. Romans three twenty is the therefore of condemnation in Romans, declaring that the whole world is guilty before God. And then Romans 5 is the therefore of justification. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Romans 8 is the therefore of assurance. In Romans 12, 1, we have the therefore of dedication. And it is this dedication that is the basis for the other relationships that Paul discussed in this section. So some might say, what is true dedication? Well, as Paul described it here, Christian dedication involves three steps. You give your body to God, verse chapter, or excuse me, verse 1. Before we trusted Christ, we used our body for sinful pleasures and purposes. But now that we belong to him, we want to use our body for his glory. The Christian's body is God's temple. See 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And because the Spirit of God dwells within him, uh, see Romans 8 and 9, it is our privilege to glorify Christ in our body and magnify Christ in our body. Just as Jesus Christ had to take on himself a body in order to accomplish God's will on earth. So we must yield our bodies to Christ that he might continue God's work through us. We must yield our members of the body as instruments of righteousness for the Holy Spirit to use in the doing of God's work. Now the Old Testament sacrifices, they were dead sacrifices, but we are to be living sacrifices. And there are two living sacrifices in the Bible and they help us understand what this really means. The first is Isaac and Genesis 22. And the second is our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac willingly put himself on the altar and would have died in obedience to God's will. But the Lord sent a ram to take his place. Isaac died just the same. He died to self and he willingly yielded himself to the will of God.
And when he got off that altar, Isaac was a, quote, living sacrifice to the glory of God. Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect illustration of a living sacrifice because he actually died as a sacrifice in obedience to his Father's will. But he rose again, and today he is in heaven as a, quote, living sacrifice, bearing in his body the wounds of Calvary. He is our high priest and our advocate before the throne of God. The verb, quote, present in this verse means present once and for all. It commands a definite commitment of the body to the Lord. And just as the bride and the groom in their wedding service commit themselves to each other, so it is with us. It is this once-for-all commitment that determines what they do with their bodies. Paul gave us two reasons for this commandment. Number one, it is the right response to all that God has done for us. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And then two, this commitment is our, quote, reasonable service or our spiritual worship. This means that every day is a worship experience when your body is yielded to the Lord. In verse 2, the world wants to control your mind, but God wants to transform your mind. And this word transform is the same as transfigure in Matthew 17. So it has come, it's come into our English language as the word meta, metamorphosis. It describes a change from within us. And the world wants to change your mind, so it exerts pressure from without. But the Holy Spirit changes your mind by releasing power from within. If the world controls your thinking, you are a conformer. If, if, um, if God controls your thinking, you are a transformer. So God transforms our minds. God makes us spiritually minded by using his word. As we spend time in meditating on God's word, memorizing the word, and making it a part of our inner man, then God will gradually make your mind, make our mind more spiritual. You give him your will, verse 2. Your mind controls your body and your will controls your mind. Many people think they can control their will by their willpower, but usually they fail. And this was Paul's experience as recorded in Romans 7. It is only when they yield the, the will to God and his power that his power can take over and give us the willpower that we need to be victorious Christians. We surrender our wills to God through disciplined prayer. As we spend time in prayer, we su surrender our will to God and we pray with the Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. We must pray about everything and let God have his way in everything. To have a right relationship with God, we must start the day by yielding him our bodies, our minds, and our wills. 
in chapter 12, verses 13 through 16, Paul was writing to Christians who were members of local churches in Rome. He described their relationship to each other in terms of members of a body. The basic idea is that each believer is a living part of Christ's body and each one has a spiritual function to perform. Each believer has a gift or, or gifts to be used for the building up of the body and the perfecting of the other members of the body. In short, we belong to each other. We minister to each other and we need each other. And, so, you know, some might say, well, what are the essentials for spiritual ministry and growth in the body of Christ? First of all, honest evaluation. In verse 3, each Christian must know that, this, that his spiritual gifts are what they are and what ministry or ministries he is to have in the local church. It's not wrong for a Christian to recognize gifts in his own life and in the lives of others. What's wrong is the tendency to have a false evaluation of ourselves. Nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself and tries to perform a ministry that he cannot do. And then again, sometimes the opposite is true. There are people who undervalue themselves. Both attitudes are wrong. The gifts that we have came because of God's grace. And they must be accepted. They must be exercised by faith. We were saved by, faith, by grace through faith. And we must live and serve by grace through faith. So since our gifts are from God, we cannot take the credit for them. All we can do is accept them and use them to honor his name. When the individual believers in a church know their gifts, when they accept their gifts by faith and use them for God's glory, then God can bless in a wonderful way. In uh, verses chapter 4, not chapter, in verse 4 through verse 8, each believer has a different gift and God has bestowed these gifts so the local body can grow in a balanced way, in a balanced and a healthy way, but each Christian must exercise his or her gift by faith. We may not see the results of our ministry, but the Lord sees it and he blesses. Note here that exhortation and or encouragement is just as much a spiritual ministry as preaching or teaching. So giving and showing mercy are also important gifts. To some people, God has given the ability to rule or to administer the various functions of the church. Whatever gift we have must be dedicated to God and used for the good of the whole church. And beyond all other gifts, um, for the good of the whole church, it's tragic when any one gift, one gift is emphasized in a local church beyond all other gifts 
as the Bible says, are all apostles, are all prophets. It, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. And the answer to all these questions is no. And for a Christian to minimize the other gifts while he emphasizes his own gift is to deny the very purpose for which gifts are given. The benefit of the whole body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, Now to each man the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with. They're not weapons to fight with. In the church at Corinth, the believers were tearing down the ministry because they were abusing spiritual gifts. They were using their gifts. Let's see. They were using their gifts as an end in themselves and not as a means toward the end of building up the church or the body of Christ. They so emphasized their spiritual gifts and they lost their spiritual graces right there. They had the gifts of the Spirit, but they were lacking in the fruit of the Spirit which would be love, joy, peace, etc. So then in verses 9 through 16, here the emphasis is on the attitudes of those who exercise the spiritual gifts. It's possible to use a spiritual gift in an unspiritual way. And Paul makes this point, the same point, in 1 Corinthians 13, when, in what we call the love chapter of the New Testament. Love is the circulatory system of the spiritual body which enables all the members to function in a healthy and a harmonious way. So this must be honest love, not, not, a, not a hypocritical love. And it must be humble, it must not be proud. A preferring one another means treating others as more important than ourselves. See Philippians chapter 2. Paul admonished his readers to maintain their spiritual zeal because they were serving the Lord and not men. When life becomes difficult, the Christian cannot permit his zeal to grow cold. Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Finally, Paul reminded them that they must enter into the feelings of others. So Christian fellowship is much more than a pat on the back and a handshake. It means sharing the burdens and the blessings of others so that we all grow together and glorify the Lord. If Christians cannot get along with one another, how can they ever face their enemies? A humble attitude and a willingness to share are the marks of a Christian who truly ministers to the body of Christ. Our Lord ministered to the common people and they heard him gladly. When a local church decides it, it wants a certain, quote, high class of people, it, it departs from the Christian ideal for ministry. In um, chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, the believer who seeks to obey God is going to have his enemies. 
When our Lord was ministering on earth, he had enemies. No matter where Paul and the other apostles traveled, there were enemies who opposed their work. Jesus warned his disciples that their worst enemies might be those of their own household. In Matthew chapter 10. Unfortunately, some believers have enemies because they lack love or they lack patience. And not because they are faithful in their witness. There is a... Uh, quote, the coals of fire the Bible talks about refer perhaps to the feeling of shame our enemies will experience when we return good for evil. As children of God, we must live on the highest level, returning good for evil. Anyone can return good for good. Anyone can return evil for evil. That's easy. The only way to overcome evil is with good, though. If we return evil for evil, we only add fuel to the fire. And even if our enemy is not converted, we have still experienced the love of God in our own hearts and have grown in grace. Amen.